look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I had entitled the sermon, There Are Aliens on the Earth. I promised you we were going to talk about aliens today, and we are going to do that. Um, but maybe not quite what you were thinking. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us. You have called us your bride, your elect. You've called us your church, your building. Lord, we are a special, unique people, not because of our own selves, not because anything inherently good within us, but because you are good. You are a good God, and you collect people around the world who you've known before the foundations of the world, and you would not miss us. And so you've drawn us to yourself, and here we are, the church gathered in unique circumstances, but gathered nonetheless, because it is our God who puts us together. It's our God who draws us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our God who places his spirit himself within our lives to cause us to want to gather, to cause us to want to know the word of God. And so all praise is due you, Lord. And we thank you for every soul that's represented here, for every soul from down through the ages you have claimed for your own and every soul you will till you return. We give you praise for that, Lord. Now, as we preach from your word, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified. You'd give us understanding, but not just understanding, Lord. You would give us action. You'd give us response to your word. We would not be just hearers only, but doers to the word of God for your glory. We ask that you bless now the word of God. We believe in the spirit, Lord, who strengthens and carries the word of God to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's two great verses here that I want to concentrate on, and they're absolutely foundational to the church. These verses will jump off the page and spiritually slap you around a little bit. They're powerful, and they're great reminders. First, it's about the uniqueness of Christian life, uniqueness of the church, how we are far different than anything else in the world, how the church is this unique organism, this organization that God has put together. There is none like it. There will never be anything else like it. We are aliens and strangers in this world. Second, it's a matter of evangelism. What does God do with this group of people? What's his goal for this group of people? Well, these verses will tell us that as well. Before I dive into the verses, I want to encourage you. There's probably somebody in your life who God affected you who they lived a life that honored the Lord Jesus Christ. They honored God in their marriage. They honored God in their daily life. They honored God in some way, and God used that in your life. Could have been a parent or a neighbor. Could have been a co-worker or a grandmother. Could have been a best friend at school. God uses people to affect us with the gospel. I don't want you to miss that. I, I know there's so many testimonies as I look out among the crowd and the cars. I've heard your testimonies, and I've heard you tell of people who lived the life of Jesus Christ in front of you, of life pleasing to him. And God used that to draw you. These verses hit that. And God has a great, great role for us in the saving of his people. Let's get into the text and look at four thoughts today. First, the church is precious in the sight of God. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. Let me read these. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, 
which weighs war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, notice how this passage starts off with that beautiful term, beloved. It is a marvelous term, and it is a term that only belongs to the church. Now, certainly people will use it outside the church, but God doesn't use it outside of the church. He uses it for his own people. I want you to think about this. Peter uses it eight times in these two letters that he writes. Paul uses it countless times throughout his 13 epistles. This is a term given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his beloved. What the word means, I want you to think about this, is he set his love on us. Uniquely on us. Different than anything else. Yes, God loves the world. He loves his creation. He longs for his creation to worship him. But he has a unique love for his beloved. That is such a special term. I've even heard uh, older couples who know known each other for many, many years will refer to each other's beloved. Because it is a beloved term. It is a beautiful term. But it is a term God thinks uniquely of Christians. I want to show you why he does this. Peter knew this love. He knew this love greatly. And after he had failed the Lord and failed to stand for him the night of his, before his death, the Lord restored him and reminded him of his deep love for him. And Peter never forgot that. And that's why I think he uses the word so often. But notice back in verse 4, drop back a little bit. I want you to recognize and see how we are his beloved. Verse 3 tells us if we've tasted the kindness of our Lord, meaning if you're saved and you, you have that sweet spiritual taste of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, and his finished work in your, in your mouth and in your body, you, you know that. And then it says, in coming to him, this people who have tasted him, Coming to him, that's Christ. Notice it says, as a living stone which the, has been rejected by men. But then look at this phrase. Speaking of Jesus Christ, God talking about his son. But his choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus, that living stone, is precious to God. Can you imagine the relationship between God and the son? It's eternally existed. Forever and ever. And then there came a time in the plan of God where the Lord Jesus Christ starts to fulfill that plan that they laid down in ages past. And our Lord Jesus steps out of heaven. And he assumes this role of the God-man. He takes on flesh and adds it to his deity so he can die for us. God calls the Son precious. He's precious. And listen, brothers and sisters, I know you who love the Lord Jesus Christ. I know he's precious to you, too. When you think of him, when you sing of him, that preciousness comes out, doesn't it? You're reminded of what he did for you. He's precious. He's precious in the sight of God. But the text doesn't end there. Look at verse 5. It continues on. And you also. And you also. Well, that little phrase there, that little connecting phrase connects us to that same term, choice and precious in the sight of God. Do you see that? The Bible says not only is the Lord Jesus Christ precious, 
and choice to God in his sight. He says, Christians, those who have tasted the Lord, who are truly saved, they are precious and choice in his sight. Notice we're living stones and and are being built up into this spiritual house for a holy priesthood. What a vivid illustration is. Christ is that foundation. He's that cornerstone. Anybody who's ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ down through the ages or till the Lord returns are God's selected stones out of the river of the world. He takes that stone and he places it in the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and he builds himself a spiritual house made of us. Holy moly. That's amazing, isn't it? He would take us, just ordinary river stones, just holding down dirt, and he makes us part of the spiritual house. You see why Peter calls the church beloved. Because we are precious to God and chosen by God. He didn't just randomly throw some stones together and put up a poorly built house. He knows you. He chooses you. And he sets you in his precious son. This is why he's called and the church is precious to God and why we are called choice and precious. Notice that this cornerstone was laid in Zion, a choice cornerstone, precious cornerstone, verse 6. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Oh, the beloved are never disappointed. Oh, yeah, we may struggle with a false view of God sometimes because he doesn't quite do things the way we want him to do it. But true believers were never disappointed in Jesus. We're never truly disappointed in him. He's perfect. It's us that are unperfect. He's, he's the one that does everything right. And so we find um, acceptance in him, never disappointed in him. Verse 7 says this precious value then is for those who believe. That's why our parking lot isn't filled all the way to the road. There's a difference here. It's, he's showing the difference of Christ and his preciousness to the Father. And those who are placed in, his, in, in the foundation of Christ, they seem to be much more few than those who are not. We see that evident throughout the scriptures. But those who disbelieve, this is the stone which the builder rejected. There's a rejection of Christ. And, and, and most people will not come out and say, well, I reject Jesus Christ. They probably all know about him and say, think he did a wonderful thing on the cross. Some people can recite the elementary principles of the gospel but he is not precious in choice to them. And so they reject him. And verse 8 says, The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, for they stumble because they were disobedient to the word. There's not a humbling to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not bending the knee to his lordship of who he is. And they find themselves outside this precious church. But notice verse 9. But you, but you, he's showing a distinction, a clear distinction between those who reject the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who have received it. And he gives some incredible titles here, a chosen race. That's what we're going to talk about today. We are aliens in a world. We're of a different race in a sense. We're, we have a heavenly race. God has made for himself a people choice and precious to him notice that we are a royal priesthood 
The Bible says we're kings and priests before God. That means we are crowned with righteousness and we come into His presence. Only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He has now crowned us with righteousness through salvation. We are now kings and priests to God. And we come into His presence with, with absolutely confidence in what He has done. And yet humbled. The Bible says we're a holy nation, a holy ethnos, a people, a people set apart. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They have their own food. Jesus is our food. Our culture is serving and worshiping Him and loving one another. We have our own language. It's the Bible. We preach His word, not ours. It's a unique ethnos, a group of people here. This is why Peter calls us beloved. And then he says, we are God's own possessions. He owns us. We belong to Him. And the reason is so that you can proclaim the one who calls you out of darkness. Proclaim the excellencies, the perfections, all that what God has done. You get to proclaim that through your life through your voice, through your testimony, that He called you out of darkness. Darkness is blindness. Darkness is sinfulness. Darkness is rejection of God's plan. God called us out of that, brothers and sisters. And we belong to Him now. And so we proclaim that. Notice verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. We were just a mixed race of people just scattered in amongst the world that was headed for hell. You, you're, not, you're not on our own. We are not on our own something special. Oh, God, you've got to take me. He makes you special. He makes us special. He makes us his people. He identifies and stamps us with his own spirit so we can never be lost. We're marked as his people. Notice, he also says, but you did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. Oh, my goodness, what a passage. We were people without mercy, without the gospel, without grace of God. This is the plan of salvation. We did not have that, and yet God gave it to us. See, this is why the church is precious in the sight of her God. Number two, the church is an alien people group. Strangers in a world. The church is an, is an alien people group. Strangers in this world. Notice in verse 11... Peter identifies us as aliens and strangers. And this is not the first time he called us that. Look in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. There he says that I am writing to those who reside as aliens. So what Peter is doing, these are the people that are scattered abroad the world now. What he's doing is he simply re-identifying those who have been identified already as aliens. Say, now, well, well, what, what does he mean by this? Why does he call us aliens? Well, he means that you don't belong to this society. You don't belong to this culture. You don't belong to this world anymore. You're a foreigner. You're an alien. Listen to what James says in chapter 2. He confirms this, this term throughout the New Testament. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which is promised to those who love him? See, that's what God did. James is bringing a passage right out of the, 
Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's what he's speaking about. We are now citizens of a heaven, people who are poor in this world. And that doesn't mean that we all don't have any money. It means that we came to God with no spiritual value of our own. We were spiritually bankrupt. We had nothing to offer the King of glory. He took us and he gave us riches in faith. Richest people in the world sit here before me. Richest people in the world sit here before me. Rich in faith. You have a kingdom. You're heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all waiting before you. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await our Savior. That's what he has for us. So our citizenship is in heaven. So we're aliens here. You remember that little song we used to sing when we were young? It probably came out of the south. It sounds like it did. This world is not my home. I'm what? Just a passing through. That's why I think it's from the south. Just a passing. Just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yeah, what a great song that was. It's a reminder. It's a reminder our standing then is not of this world. We do not belong to this world. These are warnings all through the scriptures. John warns the early church, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, whoa, is not in him. That's a clear distinction, isn't it? Are you in love with the world? The Bible says that the Father's love isn't in you if you love the world in a wrong way. 1 John chapter 3 says, see how great the Father's love for us is that we should be called the children of God and such we are for this reason the world does not know us does not know us the love the love of the excuse me because it did not know him you say well where does John get this stuff well that's what Jesus said the night before his death John 15 he says we are not of the world the world loves its own you're, you're not of the world the world loves its own it has a certain love for its its own and such we, and then it says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because this, the world hates you. There's a hatred the world has for us because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the world's not part of our realm anymore. And by the way, beloved, there's a, there's a price of the privilege that comes with this. The privilege is to exalt our God, that He took us out of this world, that He claimed us out of darkness, Colossians 1.13. He brought us out of, out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into His Son. There's a gift of redemption here. We're citizens of heaven because of the great gift of the gospel, because of the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I thank God we're not illegal aliens. <laughs> and I don't mean that in any political way. The world has not come to the point where it's made Christianity legal, at least where we live. In some places, I imagine it is. I know it is. But we live in America. But even in America, we're aliens here. We're aliens. We're not part of what God has. Look at the word alien there. It's a very interesting word. Paraoikos is the Greek word. Oikos is the word. You've probably, many of you probably know this. It means house or home. House or home. It, it carries the idea that you, 
you live alongside the word para comes on it's a kind of compound word para oikos para means to be alongside or outside something and so the word obviously means you're outside of the home you're outside of the house you're alongside the house you live outside the home of the world you're not part of that family you're just alongside the world's family You've been living near, you're around it, but you don't belong to it. Now the word came to mean a foreigner. And even the next word in our text means stranger. It's very synonymous to alien. It simply refers that you were just visitors. We have a brief stay here. BSV calls it sojourners. Just going through the country, traveling, just moving around the world spreading the gospel and just passing through because we're non-citizens. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. This is not our place, but we worship while we wait. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 and 15. This is the context as Jesus Christ died outside the camp, died outside the city. And then it says this, for, for here we do not have a lasting city. For right here, I love this verse. You can apply it today. For right here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Let us continue to offer up praise and lip from our lips of worship. This is not our home. So as Christians, the people to whom Peter wrote here, those scattered among the peoples of different beliefs, people of different values, people of different morals, people of a different standard of life, we just don't partner with the world in this. The Christians, they've always lived among the pagans. We've always lived among the world. God's always had a people for himself that lived in a fallen world. We have always had to live among those lives controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And I think you see it more than ever, for at least for our lifetime, where the world is absolutely captured by the one who works in the sons of disobedience. That's the world you and I are living in. That's the world that God is asking us to walk in. We're pilgrims. We're pilgrims in a land not our own. But remember, you're an alien. Don't get comfortable here. Don't get comfortable here. Sometimes our lifestyles reflect too much comfortability of a Christian to adapt it to the things that are going to perish. God is calling us out of that. This leads me to point three, the church and the enemies who wage war against her. The church and the enemies that wage war against her. Notice this next phrase in verse 11. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Well, at first glance, you might think fleshly lust is just immorality. Well, it certainly includes immorality. But fleshly lust has to do with our dire desires. It comes from the Greek uh, root word sarks. It means pertaining to our flesh or carnality is referring to the desires of the world. And what I believe Peter is doing here is he's charging us to abstain from these fleshly lusts which first are conceived in our minds and our hearts. And they place, and here's what I think he's after, they place success in this world over the desires to obey God. This is what we battle with, we don't we? We desire things that aren't going to matter in the end. 
Peter's warning us. Now clearly this is just not about sexual issues or immoral issues, although it shouldn't, certainly takes it in. It's referring to this flesh, this unredeemed part of us that, that there's a war going on for the lordship of our soul. And both Satan and our flesh war against this. These are fleshly lusts like passions for something that is not of God. Desires, maybe godless ambitions. Something you're, choo you're choosing to put all your effort in that does not have eternal reward to it. That does not recognize us of not being of this world. They're stumbling blocks. They're rival interests to our souls. And the Bible says they wage war against our soul. Listen, this is only true believers. There, there's no war going on like this in, in an unbeliever. An unbeliever doesn't have this type of battle. There's no raging war going on them. They're doing whatever the, the prince of the power of this world wants them to do. It has them by their flesh. They have no ability to, to, to fight it. They do not have the spirit of God. So this is spoken to believers. Think, think of our life before Christ. It wasn't near as complicated, was it? Your morality kind of moved you along, however your parents raised you or whatever part of the country you were in, and it's however strong its morality was, that maybe moved you along, but there was no internal battle going on. There was not a war between the spirit and your flesh. Satan just was taking you where he wanted. But as a Christian, there is a war declared here, but it's declared against your soul. And Satan is in that battle. But the good news is, your mind, heart, and soul, your body has been delivered from sin, from Satan and death. And now you have the new spirit, not the spirit of your fallen flesh, but you have the spirit of God taking residence within you. Notice this term, it's a fascinating term, to wage war. It's a military term. This is a, a military campaign. It's not a skirmish or a small battle or just a one-time shot. This is a long-term campaign that sin is waging against your soul. The idea here was very interesting as it brings a characterization, a characterization to it. In the idea that fleshly lusts are kind of personified here, right? That, that is, they're made into personal imagery here. This war is happening. There's an army that's against you. There's rebels that are against you. There's an army with fierce insurgents who intend to capture and enslave you to sin. So the term implies not just a resentment against you. It's a continued aggravation. It's a continued malice. It's an ongoing. The goal is to search and destroy. That's the strongness of that term. So Peter says, stay away from this fleshly lust. When you give him space, it'll take advantage. You let that fleshly lust go loose. You do not confess your sins and repent and turn from it. And you let that loose, it will kill something in your life. It'll kill your marriage. It'll certainly kill your testimony. It'll kill a lot of things. So Peter's warning us, this thing's waging a war against us. We should not take this lightly. Young people, sins after you in a, in a unique way. 
It's, it wants your soul when you're young so it can destroy your life when you're older. So that all the hopes and dreams that even of the good things of this world that God has for marriage and relationships and so forth, it wants to destroy that now. It wants to put so many consequences into your life that you'll be a mess as life goes on. It's waging a war. Peter says, stay away. Stay away. Keep your distance. The Holy Spirit wants the whole person, doesn't it? I love Ephesians 5.18. It's such a beautiful picture. He wants to fill us completely. Hey, look. Christians, sometimes we love to give them the closet. <laughs> you can't have the whole house. i got to do business. I don't need you in my business practices. I don't need you in my marriage. I'll let you out on Sundays when I go to church. That's not what the Bible sees. He wants, he wants to fill us completely in every aspect of our life, every walk, every part of our walk of life. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 say, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Anybody here not want to carry out the flesh because you love Jesus? Amen. I think you can say that, right? We may not do that all the time, but look, you want to do that, don't you? So the Bible says, look, Walk by the Spirit. Well, what does the Spirit love? It loves Christ and His Word. That's what it points you to. That's what it exalts time and time again. Paul goes on to say, For the flesh sets its desires, its lust, its war against the Spirit. And the Spirit wars or sets its desire against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. I know too many young people, I know too many people through the years that said, I wanted to have a marriage that was honoring to God. I wanted to save myself. I, I wanted to reserve my life for Him, but, but I couldn't stop my flesh. And I gave in a little bit here, and I gave in a little bit here, and I gave in a little bit here, and I gave in a little further, and pretty soon they suffer tremendous consequences for the rest of their life. And God is gracious we all have some consequences from our sin, and He takes us to heaven regardless of those. But, oh, friend, do you want to live that way in this life? Let us fight. Let us let the Spirit have our house. What are the things that war against your soul? I can't answer that for you. I can't look into your heart. I know what, 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 how it's worn against mine. But what's worn against yours? Where's your battle in this life? Where's the front line in your life? Put your name in there. Where's that battle zone? Where has the, the world lined up its forces and pointed its guns and, and has its ammunition loaded for you? Where in your life is that being set up? Where do you need to flee and find refuge in Christ and His Word? Where are you compromising biblical integrity? Mm. That hurts, doesn't it? When we compromise biblical integrity, we find ourselves losing our joy, Christian. We don't lose our salvation. The Bible is clear of that. You can't rob us of that. David, in the great sin of adultery, said, I've lost the joy of my salvation. And that's terrible. When a Christian loses his joy or loses her joy, it's because we compromise somewhere in our biblical integrity. And we let desires of our flesh take forth. Look, there's a battle for everyone's soul going on here. And I may not struggle with what you struggle with, but we all come to faith 
from different backgrounds, different fears, different habits ingrained in our life. But be assured, friend, that there are things warring against your soul, but God is enough. His word is enough. He can rescue you. Run to Him. Jesus gives such a great illustration. He says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give to exchange for his soul? Notice the language in there. What would profit? What will profit the man? The whole world? Is that enough profit? Oh, there's plenty that are after that kind of profit, aren't they? There's plenty that are after the entire world. It's all it's about is to get people to recognize you. To get as many likes as you can. To, to bring attention to yourself. And what if you did get the whole world? And you spend eternity in hell. Can you, can you, the, the world is full of these people who have the world. There's going to be a day coming. And friend, I pray it's not you. That you'll stand there and thought you had the entire world and you'll suffer in hell forever. Because you rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the next phrase. What would you give in exchange Interesting Greek terms or bartering terms. A lot of people barter with God. Well, God, I'll, I'll follow you or obey you if you do this. People try to barter with the Almighty as though they have some kind of trade value in themselves. Think about that. <laughs> there is nothing good in us. We have nothing to barter with. But say you could barter, what would you exchange for your soul? What would you give the Almighty? What do you have to offer the one who holds all things in his hands, who created all things, knows all things? What would you give him? <laughs> oh, salvation is a work of God. It changes the heart and the mind. And he causes us to love him. Many persons have given up their souls for the goods of this world. If we had nothing, let's think about this. If we had nothing, if you've lost everything and you had Christ, you're still the most wealthy in the world. And how many of us, how many, look at the cars parked in this lot. None of them got towed here. They all drove here on their own, I imagine. Nobody looks like they're starving out there. I don't think. Look what we have. And heaven waits for us from eternity I think we're living in a political wrangling for souls right now like I've never seen before. There's comments out there in the political world that love that the church is shut down. I've seen comments from mayors and governors that they wish the church would never come back. See, we're an enemy to them. We love life. We love God's view of marriage. We love His Word. The world hates that. We're on different playing fields, aren't we? We're not in their house. We're in a different house. <laughs> and so they, they wrestle against it and, and they look for opportunities to shut down the church, to get rid of it. Many places around the world, our brothers and sisters meet privately because they can't meet. And we got a bit of a taste of that and God gave us grace and mercy and we were able to live stream and still gather. There's constant attacks. Look, the gospel is so priceless it doesn't appeal to the world, but it appeals to the saved. 
and let me put one more thought there before I go to the last point. If you're wrestling with fleshly lust, in one aspect, that's a mark of salvation. Because you, you are affected and you know sin bothers you. Now, on the other side, we, we should move away from it quickly. Turn from it, repent. But listen, friends, I know there's a wrestling in my heart. It reminds me that I'm saved because God is not happy when there's sin in me. And I can feel that, and I can feel that tension. Oh, that's a mark that the Spirit lives in this house. The Spirit lives here, and He's, he's not comfortable with us bringing in worldly goods into His home. That's a good mark. And I trust many of you know what I'm talking about. You know the battle that you have each and every day fighting sin. You've seen the glory of Christ. You've seen His beauty. You've marveled that they hung on a cross for you. You know that He's personally made you holy. You positionally sit holy before God. You are blameless in the sight of God because what Jesus Christ did. And we're just working on the daily stuff by His grace. You know that heaven is so much greater than this world, but even here on earth, He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Uphold your spiritual integrity through the gospel, friends. Believe the gospel. Believe your Bible. Believe the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it'll hold up your integrity. You're not alone. You're not alone. We're all aliens. We're all foreigners in this land. And we get together periodically, several times a week, and we encourage one another. We strengthen one another so that we can stay in the battle. Last thought, the church in its excellent gospel lifestyle. The church in its excellent gospel lifestyle. Well, we're not citizens of this world. We're true citizens of heaven. And so there's a lifestyle. And so where you have your true citizenship is where you learn your lifestyle. If you come from Puerto Rico, you're going to have a certain lifestyle. If you're from heaven, redeemed in heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a certain lifestyle. And this is what Peter is after. But too often Christians who are redeemed still take marching orders from this world and they, they fall into the morality of the world and, it loses their, and they lose their joy. The world still holds a great sway. Paul on this same subject urges us, just like Paul, Peter, he uses the same word, I urge you, I beg you, I plead you, Romans chapter 12, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is physical. Verse 1, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you by the mercies of God, that's the gospel, to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That's, that's what we do with this vessel that he's given to us. It's physical. We, we choose not to do what the world chooses. Unfortunately, today, even in the church, when we preach on a message like this of literally living out for the Lord, we're often called legalism. The church is tr constantly trying to be relevant, and we no longer can say, hey, church, the Bible says to offer your body physically to the Lord as an offering, an act of worship. What we do with it, what we put on it, what we wear, what we say, where we go, all of those things are an act of worship to God. He says it, not us. This is not legalism, friends. 
This is obeying God physically. The next verse is intellectual, isn't it? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's intellectual, isn't it? You want your body to go somewhere. You want your heart to do something right. We, we transform that by the renewing of our minds. The way we renew our minds is not by paying attention to the nightly news. Not getting our, our facts and figures from them, but striving for the mind of Christ. Find the will of God. Find it in His Word. The Spirit will affirm it. This is what we call progressive sanctification. There's a continually, continual presence of renewing and growing in our lives. God is conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, such good news is here. What happens is that we begin to think like Jesus. But instead, so often we, we live like those around us. Instead of thinking like Jesus, the good news brings us to think like Jesus. But then we live like those around us. And, 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 and they approve of that life. And we find some justification sometimes in that. But if, but if Jesus doesn't approve of it, if the Word of God doesn't approve of it, then we should not approve of it. That's, I think, what Romans is saying. Now, the gospel can and will produce excellent behavior. Notice in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So we're aliens in this world. We're strangers in this world. God's Word says that we must testify to this world of the results of the gospel. And that starts with a disciple, the discipline, inner life. And the Holy Spirit calls for inner discipline, inner discipleship, but in the end, it comes outward. And that's what Peter's going to do here in this verse. Notice, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of behavior. So Peter is saying, keep your behavior honorable, honorable before the Lord. The word honorable means a manner of life that is, that is excellent in some way. Kalos is the word. It's a, it's a great Greek word. There's, we have to use six, seven, eight different English words to describe it. But excellent means that our lives are lovely. Do you have a lovely life in Christ? It's fine. It's pleasant. It's gracious. It's fair to look at. All these words we could translate from the, from the Greek word. It's honorable. It's outstanding. So now Peter is talking about the outside. So there's this inner working where his priest, we've, he's washed us, we're, we're pure before him, and now there's this outer working. There's a public side to our discipline. He says that our behavior is to be excellent among the Gentiles. That's the ethnos, the pagans, the nations, the people, meaning the unsaved. And if you're trying to witness to an unbeliever, then you have got to have behavior that is honest before God. It's too often we live this godless life and then we try to tell people about Jesus. Peter's saying, no, live, live a life of excellence so that, you're, so that from your heart will flow this behavior that is fine and lovely and gracious and honorable. Otherwise, in other words, just let your transformed life speak to the unsaved world. Listen, there are no secret Christians. There are no secret Christians. Ran into a lot of cowboys in my day who would say, Ah, Scott, yeah, I've heard you preach. I believe that. I go, you're going to come to church. You're going to fellowship. Oh, no, no. 
No, no, I, I'm not part of any of that. Whoa, that's not a mark of a believer. See, all the believers are aliens. They want to get together with their people. <laughs> they want to be with their people. It's a mark of the Spirit. It's, it's the gathering aspect. This is why we're commanded to come together because God's people want to be together. You can only keep us apart so long. The world can only say, hey, don't meet, don't meet, don't meet. And pretty soon the church is going to what? It's going to meet. Because that's what the Spirit drives us to do. And as we live this life, this glorious gospel that changes lives, oh, the Lord shows people through it. Now notice, as he talks about these things that we could be slandered as evildoers, you'll see that the world loves to call Christians evil. They turn it around on us, don't they? And you say, well, Scott, it's really bad now. Well, I did a little research why what was going on in Peter's day and shortly after. Wow, did they despise and distrust Christians in Peter's day. Far worse than we have it right now in our country. In fact, if you study any of the persecution of the time of the first century and into the second century, you'll note all kinds of slander against Christians. Because remember, he said, they'll slander you as evildoers. It's fascinating to study. They accused them of all kinds of things. They accused them of rebellion. They said they were guilty of rebelling against the Roman government and all the human authorities. They ref they, because they refused them to, to meet together, so they had to hide in secret, and so they called them rebellion. They accused them of being atheist. You realize that? You know they accused the early church of being atheist? That sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, the reason is they called them atheists because the Romans were considered to have gods, Roman gods. Even the emperors were to be gods. And if you did not worship them, you weren't worshiping gods. And so if you didn't worship the Roman gods and the Roman empires like you were expected to do, you were considered atheistic. They believed in a plurality of gods, higher and lower. And we believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Early church was persecuted greatly for that. They were accused of cannibalism. By 177 A.D., they prescribed that Christians were eating the flesh of human beings. They took the Lord's table and they said, look, they're eating the body of people. They're drinking the blood of people. They made them out in the news to be cannibals and turned the world against them. They were accused against them as those who even ate children at their feasts. One of the reasons they did that, he saw John's letter and over and over he calls them dear children. They were accused of all kinds of immorality. They were accused of damaging trade because they had honorable business practices. They were accused and called home wreckers. They were called home wreckers because the Bible taught that a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. He was to honor a woman. Oh, that wasn't going over good in society. You give women power like that. Oh, my goodness. They called them home wreckers. Accused them of leading slaves into rebellion because slaves came to Christ and found equality in the church. So they said they incited rebellion through the slavery system. They were accused of hating mankind because they were opposed to the world system. They were accused of disloyalty Caesar because they would not call him Lord and offer incense. They were being accused and mocked and slandered in every possible direction. So listen, brothers and sisters, as I wrap this up, do not think that because we live in a world 
that's going through some struggles right now, that this passage is difficult to carry out. Our brothers and sisters for the past 2,000 years have lived in the most difficult times and carried out these verses because they love their Lord. In fact, maybe it's our ease that causes the problem. Maybe because we're not tested and pushed and we become complacent. Well, God calls us to have a conduct that's honorable. It's honorable. Even when speak, people speak evil against you and slander you, we cannot allow that to start a raging war in our souls. God calls us here, no matter how poorly the world looks at us, to live excellent lives. And according to this verse, it does matter how you behave. And we cannot control what the world is doing or what anybody else is doing, but we can submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, how effective can that be, you say? Well, just look at the, just the last phrase in verse 12. As they observe them, that's our good works, our deeds, our things that we glorify God in. Glorify God in the day of visitation. If it can be so effective that on the account of your good deeds, as they observe them, present tense here, presently observe your good deeds today, right now, as they go on to continue to observe them over a period of time, they would glorify God in the day of visitation. You say, oh, Scott, what does that mean? What is the day of visitation? It's a wonderful phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's a common phrase. It's a fundamental issue that simply means God visits people. And there's two reasons God visits people. One to bless them, one to judge them. Over and over in the scriptures. This phrase comes out of Isaiah 10, 3 that Peter uses here. And it's God visiting for judgment. It's used again in Jeremiah 7, 22. It's used for blessing, deliverance, rescue, and salvation. It's used in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, to bring his people out of bondage. It's used in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 that God visited Hannah and took away her barrenness and blessed her with a child, Samuel. It's used in the New Testament that God blesses the people of Israel and accomplishes redemption. In Luke chapter 7, God visited his people for redemption. And then he uses it right before his death in Luke chapter 19. He comes in a triumphal entry. And the people who saw his good works but rejected him, he said, because you do not recognize the time of your visitation, you will fall under judgment. It's an amazing term. And that's what's going to happen. When God lets us live our lives, two things are going to happen. People are going to be blessed and they're going to see the gospel and want to taste it and want to know what it is and we're going to get to share it or it will fall on judgment on them someday. We're to live our lives for his glory. This is a very important point as I end, brothers and sisters, because that's exactly what Peter understood. Because of this ongoing observance of our character and the quality of Christian life of the unbeliever, we glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, the marvelous grace of God begins to move in the heart of an unbeliever. I pray he's doing that today. He will respond with saving faith, faith and glorify God because he remembered the tremendous works he saw in other people who believed in Jesus. God uses you. That visitation is not talking about his coming again. It's talking about when God visits a sinner, particularly for salvation. I trust and I hope each one of you want to be used of God. You want people to say, I came to Christ because God used that person to share Jesus with me. I hope you can give that testimony. What a beautiful thought. 
It's exactly why God has called us here today to live lives that honor and excel. Someone once said, we are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the truth the world is needing. We are the sermons the world is heeding. Are you effective in the world right now? Not crossing over, not living in their homes, living outside along them. We're in the world, not what? Of, we're, we're not of the world, right? Jesus sets a clear difference. There's no excuses, brothers and sisters. We have the power of God, and he can set you free. Look, we're aliens. Are you? Or are you very comfortable in this fallen world that's going to fall into the fire and judgment of God? I hope this sermon reminds you. Boy, did it hit me this week. I pray that you're encouraged by this. Let's pray, and we're going to sing a song together. And then I'm going to come back and give you one announcement. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We give you blessing and honor, Lord. You are, you are the one who set us apart. We would just be part of the world, part of the whole herd, Lord, that was headed for destruction. But by your grace and mercy, you set us apart. You gave us a love for you. We did not have it on our own. We had no good works to offer you. We had nothing in, our, in and of ourselves that would cause you to save us. You just saved us. And we, Lord, can't get our mind around it. We praise you for it. We thank you that you've made us part of a household of faith now. Many people, both here in Ormond, around the world, that you have collected and you've made us your children. So, Lord, now we ask that you would help us as sin wages war against our soul, that we would run to you, that we'd preach the gospel to ourselves, that we'd be constantly aware that there's a war going on, there's a military campaign for our souls. Lord, help us have behavior that's excellent. It's driven from the Spirit and the Word of God, nothing else. And so that you may, in your grace and mercy, may use our life as a tool to draw somebody to yourself when you go to visit them and show yourself to him, show him your son or show her the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be a small tool in that by your grace. So, Lord, may you cause us to live for you through the gospel. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.